Stay tuned for Occupied Territory America, hosted by Mike Fader. And this is Occupied Territory America with Mike Fader. We are here every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and whenever else it is that you listen or download it. Um, so last night, my wife says, um, well, you know, I mean, she, she relies on me. She works at a nine-to-five job and spends more time even than that at her office. And she's a social worker. She spends her life doing good, actually helping people who are seriously ill, who have terrible disabilities, and tries to get them to help them survive, maybe, you know, take a sort of a better outlook on life if possible. And she works hard all day long at this. And, um, you know, she comes home, she doesn't want to hear the weight, more weight of the world, right? So I'm the one who's like the political guy, right? She tells me what happened today in the world. Uh, She wants to know what happened in the world. What's going on? What does this story mean? What does that story mean? Any news? So I'm kind of like a, you know, talking newspaper. And because uh, I check the websites all day long, I get notifications from various websites. I do research. I read books. I read the paper, all this stuff. I talk to people who are involved in activist behavior. So she wants to know what's going on in the world. I say, so I say, well, she's worried about this government shutdown. And everybody was worried about it, right? Now, nobody knows exactly why they should worry about it, but it was pretty clear that, uh, and, and not raising the debt limit, it was pretty clear that it was obvious, even uh, in the strange world of abstract, made-up money <laughs> that, that passes for um, exchange between nations. I mean, after all, um, you know, she says, well, I, somebody said to me, oh, I see, yeah, that the Chinese own something like... Um, 10% or 15% of America's um, debt. And I said, yeah. She says, but but I don't understand that. And I said, you and everybody else. Did you ever hear an economist try to explain all this? They're raising the debt ceiling limit from, I don't know what it was, 15, what's the difference anyhow? 15 trillion to 17 million or 18 million. 18, I'm sorry, trillion. Yeah, 15 trillion to 18 trillion. Well, like, first you have to figure out what a trillion is. <clears throat> Sounds more like a... Uh, Something that some kid says, you know, like, I have a trillion, I have a trillion toys. You want to play with one? <laughs> is, that a, is that a real figure? Yes, I know it is. Economists take themselves so seriously, more seriously maybe than anybody else. Who takes themselves that seriously? Psychiatrists and economists are the two people I've run across in my 35 years of uh, talking to people on the radio. And, you know, I've got a lot more years besides that to add into it. Psychiatrists who work in this strange field, which is sort of half um, half intuition, you know, part intuition, I should say, part intuition, part telepathy, part uh, artistry, and part knowing, just having common sense. But they like, because it's it's so unscientific sometimes, they make a big deal about how scientific it is. You know, this drug, that diagnosis, this will lead to that, as if they really, really knew. It's, uh, and an economist, the same thing. I've had 
dozens of economists from left, right, middle, uh, professors, people who wrote books. I've had economists on my shows, various shows on different radio stations for more than 35 years. I have rarely, I shouldn't say yet, I shouldn't exaggerate too much, I have rarely met one or, um, you know, had one on my show. And even though I've tried to do the, you know, to set the interviews up uh, intelligently beforehand, who could really explain what they were talking about to the average person. And, you know, I don't want to be like some lumpen proletariat, like somebody who really, you know, who who just has this like anti-intellectual attitude. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying that really past a certain point, I'm a pretty intelligent guy. You know, I don't, I don't have an advanced degree, but I've read a lot. You know, I understand a lot of things. I even understand stuff on the business page. I understand enough to know that basically it should be called a crime page, but that's a separate conversation. Meanwhile, economists come on my show from the Center for uh, Responsive, um, you know, Economic uh, Future. You know, all those Washington think tanks. Can they figure out another another one? Is there anything left for them to call themselves? The Center for Rational Political uh, Advancement. Uh, the Center for American Progress. That's a real one, right? So they have these names, right? Guys come on from there, and they have uh, PhDs and advanced degrees and working for 20 years as a chief economist for this, that, and the other. They're a professor of econ- uh, international economics at uh, Yale. All these people come on my show. They say, tell me what a derivative is. 20 minutes later, no one is the wiser. And you begin to seriously wonder, does this man actually know what a derivative is? And then, then you ask the ultimate question about, the, uh, about a lot of all these economics things. They're, reckon- they're raising the debt ceiling, right? So that America can borrow more. Well, it's not really like America is not going to go over, put on its best suit, you know what I mean, and uh, make sure that uh, they don't have a lot of dandruff on their shoulder and comb their hair and go into a bank somewhere and say, can I borrow some money? They're going to go with a cup on the street. What do they mean by borrowing money? It means that since most of the world apparently, um, you know, buys U.S. Treasury bonds, basically that's borrowing money. Because you have to pay it back at interest. And the interest at the current moment, you know what the interest at the current moment is annually for the United States? This is just the interest on what we owe people because of the treasury bonds that they bought. $200 billion is just the interest. $200 billion a year is the interest on uh, treasury bonds. Wait a minute, i got to turn on the air conditioner here. I always forget to do that. The studio is stuffy. So, anyhow, $200 billion, $200 billion in interest, in interest, right? So, if they didn't raise the debt ceiling, two things would have happened. One is we couldn't borrow the more money that we need. We couldn't sell more treasury bonds and other ways that we have of of selling our debt. In other words, people can uh, have a piece of America one way or another, and we owe them interest, and we have to pay them back. I don't know how these more uh, complicated structured debts are, but it's mostly U.S. Treasury bonds. And apparently, the entire world bases its finances and the health of its country's economics on U.S. Treasury bonds, right? So the whole world was screaming at the United States uh, for the last couple of weeks, how can you be so stupidly irresponsible? After all, we had the, the Depression of the 1930s, and we had this recession uh, which is still ex- which still exists for most people. You know, it's only you know when when you read in the New York Times and, and you hear on TV, uh, you know, uh, we are now out of the recession or we have pulled out of the recession. Really, 
Maybe if you're rich or maybe if you're a TV anchor that makes, you know, $2 billion a year, yeah, you could say, yeah, we pulled out of it. We're, we're doing good. Uh, or maybe you're a reporter for the New York Times, an economics reporter, gets paid $200,000 a year. So I guess we pulled out of the recession. I mean, now he can buy, you know, um, his third SUV and have his country house furnished. So I guess we're doing better. That's it. <laughs> These people live in their own stupid, arrogant, little, dim-witted bubble, right? So, um, <coughs> so, so, so the Chinese, right, have something like one, I don't know what it is, $1.8 trillion of America's, you know, debt, which is something like $15 trillion. Most of that, they own treasury bonds. Why does most of the world invest its excess money? And how do they have so much excess money? Why is the United States $15 trillion in debt? $15 trillion in debt. How, why are we in $15 trillion in debt and Saudi Arabia and China have surpluses of trillions of dollars? Um, that would be an interesting thing for somebody to explain. I don't think it would be very difficult to explain. Basically, you've got two huge dictatorships uh, that are thoroughly corrupt, and they take their natural they take the money realized by natural resources in their countries or uh, business deals that are made overseas, and they have a kind of controlled fascist dictatorial capitalism. There's nothing, you know, the Chinese have nothing to do with communism anymore. It's meaningless. I mean, they call themselves the Communist Party, but that's just silly. And the Saudis are an out-and-out rapacious monarchy, right? So there's 3,000 members of the Saudi royal family. Uh, and that includes everybody, you know, the 26 children of the 15th cousin removed, whatever. 3,000 members, and they have most of the wealth of the country. But there's a lot of other rich Saudis, too. A lot of people in Saudi Arabia are pretty rich. Uh, there are people in Saudi Arabia that are poor, but they're mostly workers that came in from other countries that under very adverse conditions. And that's a really extraordinary thing. But most Saudis, Saudi citizens, um, have a, a decent amount of money. Probably the average Saudi has a better life than the average of American does. And relative to what it can buy, the amount of money, uh, what's it called? Um, I don't know. I forget the name of their uh, currency. The amount of money that the average Saudi family has probably buys them more, and they get more for it in Saudi Arabia than the average American gets for their, uh, you know, for their dollars that they earn, which is like $54,000 for a family. And that's, of course, a big joke after you take taxes away. But uh, in Saudi Arabia, every once in a while, you know, the, the 3,000 members of the royal family who spend half their time in, you know, at casinos or getting drunk or raping chambermaids in London or whatever they're doing, very religious cats, right? So the, the 3,000 members of the royal family, uh, you know, they just suck up all this oil money. The oil gets sold all over the world for uh, extraordinary prices. They fix the price of oil whenever they can. Somebody threatens the flow of oil or the price of oil. They try to subvert the government, like in Syria, for instance. They, um, they arm and supply arms to, um, to any kind of group that is, um, whose aim is to make sure that the oil flows smoothly and, uh, and that uh, oil will be, uh, that it won't be competitive with the Saudi oil. So things are going okay for the Saudis, right? So the Saudi government, they can't even, these 3,000 people who spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year in some corrupt manner whatsoever. Every once in a while, the Saudis get rumblings in their, uh, in their, what's the population of Saudi Arabia? I don't know, 30 million, 40 million? 
they get rumblings that people are discontented. Now, of course, if there was any genuine civil disobedience or even a hint of uprising or somebody spoke out of turn in Saudi Arabia, they'd get their head chopped off or locked up forever. However, still, with all of that, the world intrudes, right? Facebook, Twitter, people look around and they see the Arab Spring and other places all surrounding them. Now, I don't know about the success of the Arab Spring, but at least there are revolutions, there are uprisings by quote-unquote common people sick of dictatorships that are linked to the capitalist fascism of the United States. The Saudis see all this and... They they say I want to we want to prevent this. I mean, how are we going to keep going to casinos and drinking you know single malt scotch and having fifteen girlfriends all over the world and four hundred foot yachts if uh, if people are going to give us a lot of trouble at home? You know, we got to keep the waters calm. So all of a sudden they will um, they will rain money down on people. They'll build two new hospitals. They will uh, allow people to have this ability to do that. They just give people money. They don't ever give people freedom of speech. Uh, women have practically no rights. People can't really vote. There's no real parliament or anything like that. So you don't have any rights or freedoms there that most constitutional democracies theoretically have, that we used to have here, mostly. So basically, they just give people more money. People are saying they're irritated. We, we want to get rid of this monarchy. You know, there's grumblings. They hear things, the secret police, the Saudi who Gestapo, whatever. They hear rumblings, and they hear people saying, look, when they look around, they see this revolution in Egypt. Uh, we got rid of the dictator in Libya. Uh, there's a revolution in Syria against the dictator. There's trouble here. There's trouble there. Um, we better. So they pour money on people. This is what they do every couple of years over there. And they've done it more the last couple of years because of all the, you know, the threats surrounding them to dictatorships, of which they are a major example. Uh, so, you know, all of a sudden there is uh, the average Saudi has better health care. The average Saudi has more hospitals, better schools, uh, you name it, right? They don't ever make concessions that go anywhere near voting or freedom of speech, God forbid, because that would queer their whole pitch, as the British say. So... The Saudis, uh, you know, they sell all this oil at a, at a controlled fixed price as much as they can. They make, you know, trillions of dollars from it, and they pile up extra money. They have surplus money in their what's called sovereign wealth fund, basically, you know, the Saudi royal family's government fund. The Chinese have maybe 200 billionaires now that they're so into capitalism that they've outdone everybody else in the world, even the Russians practically. The Chinese are totally into capitalism, and it's a fixed game over there. In other words, if you're in with people at the top in the quote-unquote communist party, uh, you get licenses to do this, you get, uh, there's all kinds of bribery and corruption. So the Chinese government itself, which is essentially kind of a big mafia organization like the Russian government, they suck up all these profits too. You know, they're, they're exporting all this stuff and making tremendous profits. Um, they, uh, you know, they pay everybody in the country, everybody... 75% of the country is living at starvation wages, or literally starving, but uh, people, there are many, many billionaires there, and they have to, you know, give part of their money as bribes to the government to get their licenses to practice and to build factories and mines all over the place. So the Chinese government has trillions of extra dollars. The Saudi government has trillions of extra dollars. <clears throat> now... What can they do with it? They, they don't want to just keep it in a bank, right? God forbid it should just sit there. I mean, after all, God forbid they should actually give it back to the people who live there, who sweat and, 
and and bleed and sur- and strive to survive in their country, their own citizens, their own family, their own colleagues, their own their own country people. No, 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 no. The last thing you don't want to give them any money. They're just a bunch of common loser peasants. If they were any better than that, they would have been here with me sitting at the in the back room smoking Havana cigars and, you know, sucking up money. So anyhow, you can't give them money. And they don't want to just put it in the bank, right? Because they're good capitalists. They learn from the United States, from the West. <clears throat> so you don't just take all this, you know, money and put it in the bank. I mean, what good is that going to do? If it's sitting in Switzerland, it's going to make, uh, you know, whatever it is, a little tiny bit of money. You want to invest it all over the place and make more money. Money makes money. You know, it's like um, gremlins. <laughs> you know, gremlins. Uh, gremlins, you just throw some water in this money, and it grows overnight into 100 times more, right? So they want to do something with this money. What do they do? They want to, and they're afraid of putting it in most places. I guess they're Swiss banks. But apparently, even with all the, uh, the misery in the United States, the United States owes something like $15 trillion to the rest of the people in the world and to its own citizens who invested in um, U.S. savings bonds. The United States has a shaky economy. There are tens of millions of people without health care. People are, you know, are being thrown out of their houses. Uh, 20, 30, 40 million people are on food stamps. It's really a disaster here. And yet this is the place where the rest of the world, when they have extra money, wants to invest their money, and they buy U.S. Treasury bonds, and although they don't get paid much on interest on the Treasury bonds, they're absolutely sure this money's safe, because after all, there's a lot of other places they could put it. There could be a revolution. If there's a coup, or uh, like a military coup, or some political coup, or if there's a revolution, or anything like that could upset the entire government, and if they invested in that place, let's say they invested in manufacturing or mines or, you know, plantations or the government itself and their debt, it could be erased overnight, right? Or maybe some other government would have a revolution and decide to nationalize everything and they would lose their $500 billion that they parked there. <clears throat> so apparently the best, place to, the best place to put the money is the United States government. And um, so this is how bizarre it is. Here's a government, here's a country which is completely unstable, the United States right now. Um, it's headed straight towards a military dictatorship, which is good. You know, other countries like Saudi Arabia and China, they love that. The more like a dictatorship the United States is, that means the more stable the economy will be, they think. And that's fine with them, right? Uh, democracy seemed to work okay, but they're more happy, obviously. They're more comfortable people like this with a dictatorship. That's what they understand. So they don't mind that at all. And um, so, so what they do is, here's a country that has $15 trillion in debt, the United States. Its citizens are suffering, uh, you know, more and more all the time. Tremendous poverty. You know, the world couldn't care less. It puts its money in treasury bonds. So when the United States approaches a place like it did in the last couple of weeks up until last night, where it may not actually, where it may actually default, where the, where the treasury, where the government was running out of money, since it needs to borrow money all the time to live. The United States government is a, uh, a junkie for borrowing money. It's like a heroin junkie for borrowing money. Uh, if we don't keep borrowing money from the Chinese and the Saudis and from our own citizens and from pension funds and whoever else in the world invests in United States Treasury bonds, if we don't borrow money all the time like a junkie needs drugs, then we can't survive. We can't actually pay people. We can't pay people the interest on, on, on the loans, right? So, um, so this is what's going on, right? So 
you know, my wife says, what happens if we default? I'm really worried, you know. I said, you know, what do you think is going to happen? You know, I was thinking to myself, what is going to happen if the United States defaults and can't pay any of its interest to all of these sovereign nations? Is, is China going to repossess New Hampshire? Are they, are they going to send uh, uh, Chinese, uh, the Chinese military to Iowa and take it back? You know, there's no, and when, they, when people invest in U.S. Treasury bonds, I never read, I never had a U.S. Treasury bond, right? But, um, but uh, the, you know, I, I haven't read the fine print. I don't know what it says in here. But usually when a bank, like say if a bank gives you money, like car loan or a house loan, right, a mortgage, if you default on that, you don't pay it back. They take the car or they take the house, right? Repossession. And at least the bank has an asset. Most places, or even uh, ordinary lenders, won't loan you any money uh, unless you guarantee it or anchor it with some kind of asset. <clears throat> they just won't do it because they figure, well, what if you screw up or something happens to you? And um, they at least have some object that they can sell and get back part of their money. So what are the Chinese and the Saudis going to do if uh, we don't suddenly, we couldn't pay them their interest on their loan? They can hop up and down like Rumpelstiltskin, but what else are they going to do? They can't invade the country. They can't repossess part of America. They can't, what are they going to seize the American embassy? That's not worth more than $21 million. You know, that won't help them out. So I don't, I don't know why. I mean, I was thinking to myself, what if everybody defaulted on everybody? You, you have a credit card right now, right? I assume everybody listening has a credit card. Who doesn't have a credit card, right? So um, what if you decided, what if everybody in the whole world, there is something like, I don't know, $10 trillion in credit card debt all over the world, most of it in the United States. What if everybody decided, I'm not going to pay back the credit card companies? What if every student decided, I'm not paying back my student loan this month? So nobody pays anybody. What if every single government in the world who borrowed money from the IMF and the World Bank, and what if the United States and all the governments in the world that owe money to other banks and to other governments that borrowed it, what if everybody in the world said, I'm not paying you back. I'm not paying you back. I'm not paying you back. I'm not paying anybody back. And everybody said, I'm not paying you back. What would happen then, do you think? Would it make any difference whatsoever? Wouldn't we all just still go to work? And this is presuming that we had a job that actually... Now, here's, here's the rub. I asked the question, so I give the answer, right? <laughs> As if I know the answer. Most people these days in a place like the United States don't work anymore in places where they make things or grow things. In other words, very few people, uh, fewer and fewer people, I should say, are actually in jobs that, that really mean something, right? That really means... I don't know whether I qualify or not. I just talk. I don't get paid here anyhow. I get paid at Sirius. Uh, um, an incredible amount of money. <laughs> yeah, anyhow. So, um, so here I am. To, I mean, what is an essential job, right? Farmers need to grow food. Uh, I guess car, I mean, people need cars, you know, to get to work or, you know, whatever. So there need to be people who make cars. People build houses. Um, people install plumbing. Uh, people, uh, sewer, mostly public employees, you know, people, sewage workers keep the sewers functioning, which have the garbage men pick up the garbage. Cops, um, you know, uh, keep the peace when they're not tasering people to death or shooting uh, unarmed civilians. Um, you know, the army theoretically is supposed to be there to uh, protect your uh, government, which that's a whole different story. But there's all kinds of jobs. Uh, doctors, you know, uh, treat people who are suffering or in pain. They maybe save lives. Nurses, 
think of all the people that have jobs. You're a truck driver. You're driving um, produce uh, to market right now. I've talked to a lot of truck drivers. A lot of truck drivers listen to Sirius Radio for one reason or another, mostly because they put it in cars. And the whole thing about satellite is you can drive around the country and the signal doesn't get interrupted. Like, you know how you, when you're taking a trip, like 100, 200, 500 miles, and you listen to 22 radio stations because the signal fades out and that same signal is taken over by another radio station in another town or city. But the thing about satellite is once you tune in, you can drive all over the whole country and you don't lose the signal that much unless you're going to some valley somewhere. So... So here, so anyhow, so people have essential jobs, and you could rate them on a continuum. Like, how essential is your job? Think about it. Now, it's the modern world, and I'm not judging anybody. I'm really not judging anybody, but, you know, once in a while, if I do, I'll make it clear. But, um, you know, how essential really is your job? You know, so let's say everybody defaulted on every loan. What would happen? Um, I guess a lot of people in the banking industry would lose their job, even innocent people like tellers. Clerks, secretaries, janitorial staff, you know, real people who do real things, actually, in the, within this organization. But people who here, listen to this. Um, this is from the Times uh, business page the other day. Um, it's very difficult to find articles on the front page of the business page that isn't about somebody being indicted, investigated, or paying a giant fine to the government for cheating everybody. But you can occasionally find an article. Okay, buyout firms are chasing sky-high sums. Buyout firms are chasing sky-high sums for next moves. Private equity funds are in a mad dash for cash. Across the country, nearly 2,000 private equity firms are making pitches to state retirement systems, corporate pension funds, and wealthy investors in the hope of raising nearly three-quarters of a trillion dollars for their next new funds more than what was raised over the last two years combined. The push is part of the life cycle, is part of, the life cycle of private equity industries, which raises investment pools from large institutions and others that typically last about 10 years. Buyout firms combine the money with borrowed cash, if it's all borrowed cash, to acquire companies over the first five or six years and then sell those companies or take them public or break them up into pieces and sell them at a profit if it all works out within a cycle of 10 years. Buyout firms that last raised money during the boom era from 2006 to 2008 need to raise their next funds to maintain certain fees, that is to pay off their investors. Funds charge an annual management fee of 1.5% to 2% of money raised and take 20% of profits from their investments. Uh, pension systems across the country are now wading through the deluge of funds seeking cash. In other words, what do these people do in the world? They go out and raise money from other people who have money to invest in other companies that they have nothing to do with and don't even really understand that well, but may be profitable or think may be profitable. They invest in these companies. They take money that they borrow from other places or it is loaned to them or given to them as an investment. And they, these people in hedge funds and equity firms, invest this money in other companies. They buy companies. So let's say you're in a company that makes cars or it makes... Um, processing machines to slice up vegetables in a large factory and packaging machines to, to uh, package uh, meat or vegetables to sell in a market, to sell in supermarkets all over the country. Let's say you work in a company that uh, produces um, 
uh, hubcap, uh, you know, balancers, wheel balancers, so that trucks and cars have their cars balanced. A million things that people could do. These people raise money. They sit in an office someplace in their house, like, you know, in their 20-room mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut, or on some penthouse in downtown Manhattan. And they raise money, right? Um, and they invest it. They buy a company in the Midwest someplace. Maybe they've never even been there, but somebody told them it was a good investment. And they buy this company, and then they pump it full of, uh, you know, full of um, uh, borrowed uh, cash. They hire unnecessary employees. They break it up into divisions. They uh, hire publicity, um, you know, companies to spend millions of dollars on publicity saying, buy this product, even if it's not a very good product or whatever it is. They pump the company up, and then they split it all up or sell it off at a profit. People, you know, thousands of people have lost jobs. Tens of thousands of people have lost jobs this way. That's what Bain Capital did. Remember uh, Mitt Romney? They'll buy up a company that's struggling or maybe that's doing okay, load it up with all kinds of debt, which, by the way, the hedge fund people don't have to pay off. The equity people don't have to pay that. They'll, they'll load it up with debt, and then they'll sell off pieces of the company, and um, they'll put thousands of people out of work. So this is all attached to what I was saying before. These people are at the utter extreme end of the continuum of people who are useless, leeching parasites. In other words, the only thing they do is borrow money. They didn't even see the money, you understand. They borrow the money over the phone or through a computer or some you know, uh, you know, transfer of funds in an account someplace in a computerized way. They borrow the money from someplace else. They buy a company they don't know anything about that makes something that they don't care about or, and they have no idea who works there. Then they inflate this company or do all kinds of things to figure out a way to uh, have it make more money, usually artificially, and then they sell it off at a profit even if they have to break it up or a lot of employees get laid off in the, in, in the process. And then they return a large amount of money to all the other people who invested with them and they themselves make uh, billions of dollars in fees and profits too. So these people are utterly useless. Not only are they useless, but they hurt uh, the lives of hundreds of thousands, millions of people all over the world all the time. These are the first people I would throw out of an airplane 3,000 feet above the Atlantic if it was my world, right? Okay, so, um, yeah. <laughs> but let's say you're a farmer or a carpenter or a truck driver or uh, you know, an, uh, an EMS uh, person or a nurse or, you know, somebody who does something really, a teacher, somebody who does something that has real value. You grow food. You uh, make a dresser, uh, you know, that people can put their clothes in. You uh, are an electrician. You fix wires so that people don't have fires in their building or they can, whatever it is. I mean, there are, you know, uh, millions of people who have actual real jobs, right? In this place right here, I don't really get paid. I don't get paid to do this. So I, I guess you could call it a job anyhow. I come in every week and I do it. The engineer, I'm looking at the engineer. Actually, I'm looking at the engineer's shoulder because the window doesn't give me a full view. Now I see the whole engineer. He's doing a job. He's keeping this whole station, which has a lot of really good programs on it, things that you need to know or you may enjoy listening to. He keeps you, um, you know, uh, you hear it because of him. The engineer basically makes sure that you hear this program, that, you know, he monitors the signal, he gets you on the air, he checks your headphones if you're, you're, the, um, if you're the host, whatever. He makes sure that you hear this. You couldn't hear it without the engineer. It wouldn't work without him. Then we got a program director here who 
you know, gets new people to come and do programs, who uh, talks to people about their programs. So he helps to you to hear important stuff, right? Then you got an archivist who's sitting out there, and he works every day real hard to make sure that you can uh, hear the downloads. You know, he posts these things online. He knows how to do this, and he, uh, you know... He posts the downloads and he does other things that are important to make sure that everybody knows what's on PRN and that you can listen to this stuff. And he, um, so all these people are doing real jobs. Everybody in his building, they're supplying vitamins to people or whatever it is, you know, the supplements. And some of them are really helping people. People got all kinds of jobs. But so my wife says, what did I start off talking about? My wife says to me last night, let's watch, <laughs> let's watch um, uh, C-SPAN. We'll see the actual uh, Senate, and we might see the House um, discussing this and voting on it. It's very exciting because at this point last night we had all under we all understood from various leaks and various websites that uh, they had reached a deal that these uh, that these big babies in Washington, you know, these arrogant assholes, had reached a deal to save everybody. Right? We could lift the debt ceiling, and it's a wonderful thing now. Now we can borrow. 18, bill, $18 trillion from people all over the world who basically stole the money from their own people or who are investing in, um, in government bonds because um, that's what they do. They can't just put the money in a bank and let it sit there, right? No, they have to make money on it. Everybody's got to use money to make money. Otherwise, you're a failure, right? So what a fantastic thing happened last night. It was like the second coming of Christ. We were able, we're able now to... To, to lift our borrowing limit to $18 trillion. I'm so happy. Doesn't that make you happy? <laughs> if you ran your life, and I ran my life the way the United States government runs its economic life, um, we would be sued, we would be thrown out of our houses, we would have all of our credit canceled, and we would not even be able to get a job. We, we would, you know, nobody could run their economic life, their budget, the way the United States runs it. I mean, they can print money if they want. You know, you can if you run out of money, but they can. Or they can pass a resolution and uh, borrow even more money. How much money can you borrow? Can you, you want to raise your debt ceiling limit? I'd like to raise my limit. <laughs> I suddenly would like to have the ability to borrow, uh, you know, $500,000. And then, uh, you know, I'll pay it back whenever I feel like it. Or not. So this is what's going on. So she says, let's watch this. And I said, why do you want to watch this? You're going to see a bunch of rich, really rich, literally rich people in Congress. The average, um, you know, the average um, amount of assets that a congressperson has, that senator and congresspeople, is $11.1 million. I've mentioned this before. And there are two congressmen, one Daryl Issa and another one, I forget his name, somebody from Texas. One of them has $400 million in assets you know, uh, savings, bonds, uh, you know, God knows what else, yachts, houses. And the other one has $500 million. $500 million. So I said, what do you want to watch? He's going to watch a bunch of arrogant, rich people, uh, you know, with cons- all of them conservative, with expensive suits on, congratulating each other, patting each other on the back, walking around, in a giant plastic bubble they call the Congress of the United States. I said, it's a repellent sight, and it's disgusting because it has nothing to do with you and me, and there's nothing real about it. So she says, well, I want to watch it anyhow and see what's going on. I said, okay. So I turn it on, and what do we see? We see a bunch of extremely rich, self-satisfied, arrogant assholes with very expensive clothes 
walking around, clapping each other on the back and congratulating each other, except for the minority of people who have a grim look on their face because they lost their battle, whatever that they, whatever they thought their battle was, whatever they thought their battle was. Point being this, you're looking at people, that, you know, if you were to tune in last night and I tune and watch these people for like half an hour and they're taking a vote, right? And they're very serious, of course. This is like the Roman Senate. And believe me, it is like the Roman Senate. You know, let's not be naive. The United States government has always was the creation of, except for the people who fought and died and were wounded in the Revolutionary War and had to fight the British again for the next 20, 30 years to make sure we kept it all, right? And then, uh, well, so, you know, the people who fought and died, you know, farmers, uh, laborers, uh, whatever it is, carpenters, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, People who had carts, carters, people who fixed wheels, all these people, blacksmiths, people who fought in the Revolutionary War um, and uh, risked their lives, and some of them lost their lives, and it's a violent, brutal, nasty war that went on for five years, right? People who fought in this, yes, they fought for it. But the people who created the United States government and who basically owned and ran the United States government to a certain extent, and certainly ran it if they didn't own it, um, were rich people. This government was thought up by and actually created by people who were very well off or actually very, very rich. Some of the richest people in the country. Some of them owned slaves, plantations. They had vast farms. They had hundreds of, um, of uh, employees, some of them indentured servants. Rich people basically founded this country, right? And it's never really been all that much different. I mean, the ideal in democracy is one person, one vote. It wasn't used to be one man, one vote. Now it's one person, one vote. I'm reading a really interesting book now published by Yale University Press on the history, the, the entire history of civil disobedience in the United States. Um, it's very academic and very, 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 uh, you know, um, complex. So sometimes it's slow reading, but it is an absolutely thorough history, a big, long book about the whole uh, background history, um, theory, and practice of civil disobedience in the United States, all the way back to people protesting the way the Indians were treated by Andrew Jackson, uh, civil disobedience against the early uh, government of the United, federal government of the United States, civil disobedience about abolition, of course. Now I'm reading about women's suffrage, and on and on and on, civil rights. And it's absolutely fascinating. But what I'm looking at when I look at the people last night is the same usual. I'm looking at the usual suspects since always, right, since when the government was founded. Rich people, rich people. Now, the, one of the schizophrenic things about the United States of America, one of the strange uh, psychotic aspects of America is it was revolutionary uh, in one way is that you had to, if you read the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, it was an extraordinary revolutionary way to run a government. And it tried within its uh, tremendous limits of bigotry and intolerance and whatever else to at least theoretically or abstractly, it laid down rules. It says all men are created equal and forget about slaves and women, but you know, little by little by little, the American system of government was able to be swayed so that the laws changed and there are, there are not slaves and women can vote. But it's a constant struggle. When you read a book like this, which is a survey from the very beginning up until the present time, 
you see that there's one thing for sure. You can never stop struggling because these people will always, there are always a small group of psychopathic, greedy sons of bitches, and now with equality, just bitches, <laughs> bastards, throw it all in, right? There's always a small group of people in every country, the Saudi royal family, uh, Putin and his friends, the leaders of the Communist Party, uh, the uh, you name it, in any country, right? There's always a small group of people who want to run everything and they want to own everything. They want everything you have and they, they want to own it and they want to run it. They want power and they want money and they never stop. They're like mad dogs. And the system of government in the United States and the ethic of equality and freedom in this country... Um, uh, enables people at least to say to these people, you're out of line, you better stop, or we're going to vote you out of office. And when voting doesn't work, when voting didn't make any difference with abolition and with uh, women's suffrage, then people got arrested in the thousands, hundreds of thousands, and the millions. People finally lost their lives and were beaten to death uh, because the law wasn't helping them out. But theoretically, in the United States, the law is supposed to help you. So I tune in last night, and what do I see? A bunch of very rich people, arrogant, arrogant people walking around, rich, you know, wearing fancy clothes, walking around congratulating each other that they had done something wonderful, like they had eliminated poverty or stopped a war or cured a giant plague. When, in fact, what did they really do? Aside from putting a lot of real government workers back to work so they could, you know, feed their families and so they could do, you know, scientific investigation and inspect uh, drugs and food. That's real. What they did was their greatest achievement. What was the tremendous achievement last night where they were, you know, practically kissing each other out of uh, self-love and, uh, and, and, and the wonderfulness of each other was with that now we're able to borrow two trillion dollars more for the next couple of years. And we're all in more debt than we ever were. <laughs> I mean, it's extraordinary. And I said, and I'm looking at these people. These people do not represent me in any way whatsoever. These people are like the opposite of everything that I feel and know and believe and that I've done in my life. They have nothing to do with me. And as somebody wrote in Common Dreams, uh, what's happening with the media, you know, she says, let's watch MSNBC. Maybe, they, no, if you watch MSNBC, they'll tell you how wonderful the Democrats are and how awful the Republicans are. And the general media consensus with all this now, after what happened with the government shutdown, and the government media, the media consensus is this. Um, reason and sanity have prevailed. It's business as usual, thank God. Thank God. What is business as usual? Tens of billions of dollars used to invade other countries and to occupy other countries, mostly illegally. Money siphoned off to the NSA to spy on American citizens and everybody else in the world. Billions of dollars, right? Business as usual that we can borrow more money and have to pay $250 billion in interest every year to a bunch of dictatorships all over the world and prop up a system where pension funds, you know, stuff that, you, that you're involved in and I'm involved, that pension funds also purchase this stuff. A system of profit and greed and competition and war if none of that works out in any kind of legal way. That's quite an achievement, right? Now, the media is celebrating that rationality and intelligence and reasonableness has prevailed. Really? Is it rational and reasonable and intelligent to keep um, funding a system 
that murders people, children all over the world with drone strikes from out of the blue, run by somebody sitting in a place in a, in a, in a, in a bunker in a leather chair in Las Vegas or upstate New York? Is it rational, reasonable, and justifiable and the celebration of American freedom and democracy that we can, um, that we can borrow two trillion more dollars and live in permanent debt? In one way, the Tea Party, Tea Party, as crazy as they are, and a bunch of vicious, basically vicious white Christian bigots that they are, um, they had a point. There is no, what is the sense of borrowing more and more money all the time? You can't do that. I can't do that. We would finally just go broke and have nothing and starve to death and have no place to live. We can't keep borrowing money, but that's an achievement, right? That's a big achievement. So um, now we can give, um, you know, $74 billion a year to, uh, to uh, you know, to, to education programs when we have to pay $250 billion in interest on our debt. What is all this? If we raised corporate taxes and collected, just collected the corporate tax that we never collect because these bastards <clears throat> own congressmen and senators, if we just collected all the corporate taxes that corporations evade, <clears throat> that would be tens of billions of dollars a year. If we had a one-tenth of one percent tax on every stock and bond trade in this country every day, and there are billions of them done electronically, that's tens of billions more dollars a year that would go to our government. If we stopped building embassies and spy centers and, um, and uh, sending uh, tens of thousands of, um, of special operations troops and marines to, to something over like 1,400 military bases all over the world, we'd save tens of billions of dollars a year. If we stopped building all these weapons and nuclear weapons, which we're still building, and missile systems and missile protection systems that don't work at all, we would have hundreds of billions of dollars more a year. In other words, and if we taxed the rich... The obscene, insane, psychotic, greedy rich that have the balls of every congressman and senator and whatever it is that you would call, (laughs) whatever metaphor, whatever phrase you would use for women too, that have all these people clutched in their fists in the palm of their hand. If you raise taxes to 60, 70, 80 percent over a million dollars and you collected corporate taxes and made these bastards pay up so that the rest of us could live decent lives. If you raise the minimum wage to $50 or $40 an hour and lowered CEO pay by 79, 85, 90% so that it was just reasonable instead of insane, if, you stopped, if, if we had a culture where we didn't pay a baseball player $25 million a year in a city where people are living on the street, in Detroit, the manager of the Detroit Tigers gets paid, Jim Leland gets paid $2 million a year. Uh, Justin Verlander, you know, their star pitcher, just signed a contract where he gets paid $23 million a year. And yet there are people, in, there, there are whole portion, uh, parts of the city of Detroit where they can't afford to turn the streetlights on, where the sewage system doesn't even work, where there's no schools anymore. It's a city like some post-apocalyptic movie. It's like a deserted city. People are dying in poverty, and they're paying these people that much money. Not only that, the, the governor of, um, you know, of uh, Michigan, 
wants to take hundreds of millions of dollars and build yet another new stadium to put one of the sports teams in. I think it's the hockey team and the basketball team. This goes on and on and on. So it's not just these people I'm talking about, these crazy people who you always have to go after and keep a leash on. You have to, go, you have to watch them all the time. Eternal vigilance. You know, you can't just sit back and say, man, I worked hard today. I'm going to go home. I'm going to have a beer. I'm going to have a drink. I'm going to get a high, whatever. I'm going to watch TV. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with my friends. I'm going to just, like, take it easy. You cannot ever seem to take it easy with these people. And if you do, because they don't take it easy. Not for one minute of their waking or sleeping lives do they or their staffs or their owners or their handlers or their investors ever stop trying to steal everything you have and cheat you in every way they can. And so we have to shoulder this constant wearying burden of banding together, because you can't do it on your own, and practicing civil disobedience and demanding that they pass these laws. In one way, the Tea Party is right. They're, they are a bunch of lowbrow, idiotic, fundamentalist bigots, for the most part, who are playing to uh, an even stupider audience in their gerrymandered congressional and senatorial uh, districts and states. And yet they have a point, which is they are acting unreasonably and irrationally. They are doing things which are almost illegal and unconstitutional to get what they want. Now, they didn't get it, and that's generally a good thing. But it's not the greatest thing in the world to perpetuate our debt forever, to do things which, uh, you know, you know, which put us all in a, a position of, um, of uh, total debt for the rest of our lives, right, that the government has to pay off. The government didn't have to pay off $250 billion a year in interest. It would have all that much money to spend on programs that actually help people to build alternative energy so we wouldn't have to suck up all this oil and burn this stuff and, and fry the planet up like a French fry. And if it collected all the money from all the astoundingly, obscenely rich people in, in this country, we wouldn't have to eliminate programs that provide food to old people or medical care to poor people or education to people who can live better lives because they're educated. Everything is upside down and backwards because if you just rest for a little while and you don't scream and yell and get out on the street and you don't organize and you don't run primaries to drag these people, the Tea Party succeeded. They're there to do this insane shit that they're doing. Um, they're there to do this because they, um, they took their zealous um, you know, uh, willpower and they concentrated like a laser beam, I mean with the help of a lot of rich people behind them, but concentrated their political activity and they beat everybody in primaries in their own party, which is why the Republican Party was dragged all the way over to the right. If we want to work within any kind of um, remainder of the political system in this country, we on the left, we have to do the same thing that the Tea Party did. What they did here was ridiculous and insane and stupid and self-destructive and destructive to everybody else in the world, potentially. But their tactics are something we should take a good look at. They are being unreasonable. We should be unreasonable. You know, they bordered on occasionally doing outrageous things like, you know, civil disobedience, but they carried guns with them and Confederate flags because they're a bunch of assholes. But we should use civil disobedience. It's an ancient age-old tactic which has turned America around and actually made it into as much of a democracy as it is now. Without civil disobedience, there would still be slavery. 
there would finally still there would women wouldn't be able to vote. There would be no civil rights. Well, slavery took a war, but you know, really, civil disobedience is as essential to democracy in America as voting or anything else that's in the Constitution or Declaration of Independence. It's something that everybody has to get involved in again in uh, a united, organized, focused way. Absolutely, civil disobedience. And then, if we're working within the political system, then we have to find our own money, put it together, um, and maybe uh, interest some people who are very rich but maybe have some liberal tendencies to fund candidates who are truly people's candidates, really left-wing candidates, do the same thing the Tea Party did. Drag the Democratic Party away from its centrist, centrist, uh, Wall Street-controlled, self-satisfied, arrogant, rich center and drag it over to where it belongs to the people, a little bit like it did in the 30s. That's what we have to do. So I watch these people walking around with their suits on last night, patting each other on the back and smiling and, uh, you know, having all kinds of important conversations and sending their staff members to run off for more coffee or to bring, you know, things to other people. And, um, you know, what am I looking at? I'm looking at a bunch of rich people in a bubble, in a place where they all love each other and think they're wonderful, propped up by the media, ass kisses all day long from their congressional staff, everybody bowing and scraping to them. And they don't represent anybody that I ever knew for real in the real world. That's what we have to do is get rid of these people. We've got to get rid of them. Cause I went walking 